Well, in our few Sundays where we are not in a particular book of study, but we are looking at some individual passages for a few weeks, uh, in that uh, period of time now that we're in, we looked last Sunday at a particular passage of Scripture. Psalm 56 is what we studied together, a passage that addresses uh, really all believers and uh, teaching us what it means and how to have victory over fear. Well, today we are studying another individual passage of Scripture that has a particular application to church leaders, which means that today I am preaching, first of all, to myself and the other elders here at our church, But of course, secondarily, this passage will be profitable as well for all believers. And we know that because of what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Well, this passage that we're looking at today that's particularly applicable to church leaders, but in a general sense, applicable to all, is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Paul wrote actually about four letters to Corinth, but two were chosen by God to be in the completed canon of Scripture, the two letters we know as 1 and 2 Corinthians. So this is the second letter that we have in Scripture to the Corinthian church, looking at chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. A brief summary of the context will, of course, be helpful. The Apostle Paul, as you know, founded the church in Corinth when he preached the gospel there, and some came to know Christ. You can find that in Acts chapter 18. In a sense, then, he was their spiritual father. Nevertheless, He had to endure several forms of criticism, especially from some false teachers who had infiltrated the church in Corinth, false teachers who were seeking to discredit his ministry in the perception of the people there in the church. They said that he was not qualified to be an apostle, and they had several reasons for saying that from their perspective. For example, this is what they said, that his appearance was less than desirable. He was nothing great to look at, especially due to his ongoing health issues and afflictions. In particular, he had a terrible eye disorder. Perhaps that made him hideous to look at. We don't know. But they levied that accusation. His appearance was less than desirable. They said this, he didn't speak well. He didn't really have good oratory skills. They criticized him because Paul refused pay. They said, well, he can't be a real apostle then. He lied about planning to visit them, they said. They said that he was dishonest when he came to money matters. And they said that he distorted the true meaning of God's word. It was his manner, according to the false teachers, to say more about himself than he said about Jesus because they accused him of striving to expand, build, expand his own empire. And they accused him of being a dictator of the people. So what we find in this letter 
Due to a desire to protect the gospel and gospel ministry in Corinth, Paul was compelled to respond to all of that, not for his own reputation, but for the sake of new covenant ministry. Now, in chapter 3, the apostle has just called attention to the joy of new covenant ministry, the very privilege of being a new covenant minister. He and his co-workers had not proclaimed, he says, the legalism of the old covenant and the Mosaic law, but they had proclaimed a better message, the gospel, the gospel message, which is a message about the Spirit's work to bring someone to know Christ and to love Christ and to follow Christ. The gospel message that includes even the reality of being changed into the likeness of Christ. That's the ministry Paul had been called to by God. And that's the ministry Paul is describing in our passage that we're looking at today. Here we're going to find that he provides for us four distinctive characteristics of new covenant ministry. Four distinctive characteristics of new covenant ministry, which is the only valid ministry. Here's the first one. Number one. It is based on divine mercy. It is based on divine mercy. Verse 1 begins, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now that opening term, therefore, uh, which you could also translate uh, for this reason, uh, expresses a connection, obviously, to what has gone before in this letter. In other words, this points back to all he has said about the difference between the covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. It points back to what he has said about the fact that God had mercifully opened Paul's spiritually blinded eyes to the truth about Christ. In addition to that mercy, God had shown mercy to Paul by even, even putting him into service. Even though he was a blasphemer, and he was a persecutor of Christians, a persecutor of the church. Even though he was a violent aggressor, God had been merciful to him to save him and to call him into the ministry. So it was because of this mercy in both saving him and calling him into ministry that Paul could persevere in serving the Lord, even in spite of all those attacks from all his enemies. Or as he says in verse 1, because of God's mercy, he did not lose heart. He did not lose heart. That term, losing heart, has to do with losing courage and behaving like a coward. It, It means to shrink back due to fear and maybe even be remiss in fulfilling your duty. Now, Paul has commented on the attacks he has faced a couple of times along the way in 1 Corinthians before our passage, he's commented on the great difficulties attending his ministry. For example, back in chapter 1, verse 8, he writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, in Asia we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Paul lived his life daily under the threat of death from his enemies. And this threat of death was in addition to just the ongoing relational problems and friction that he had with the people in Corinth and the the personal, emotional turmoil at moments in his ministry where things were so uncertain. 
The point is, the temptation to quit, the temptation to be fearful, to be timid, to become remiss in fulfilling his duties, that must at times have been a very real temptation to Paul, a very real tug on his heart. And yet he says that he stood resolute, determined not to give up, determined not to give in to the pressures involved in carrying out the ministry he had been called to. And what helped him was remembering the mercy God had shown to him. By the way, in the next section that follows, Paul speaks more specifically even about those difficulties, the many difficulties he faced in his ministry. And after speaking about the difficulties, he repeats this declaration in verse 16. Look ahead, chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. So, God's sovereign mercy had saved Paul. It was an act of God's mercy to turn him from a a, a violent persecutor into a minister. Even though he knew, he knew himself he was unworthy of that calling. But God's mercy, mercy strengthened him. The knowledge of that mercy strengthened him to do the work of the ministry, even though there were certainly times he had been tempted to give up. False teachers couldn't say that. Paul's enemies could not say that because they had not received mercy from God. But Paul could, and it made a difference in how he went about his life and how he went about his ministry. And it's still true today. New covenant ministry. We do what we do based upon the knowledge of God's divine mercy in our lives. Number two, it is evidenced in personal integrity. When it comes to new covenant ministry, it is evidenced in personal integrity. There's something else that went along with Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus when God saved him mercifully and mercifully called him into the ministry. Something else went along with that. Verse 2, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Now that introductory term, but, is that strong Greek term that means a uh, a strong contrast. So rather than losing heart and giving up, Paul remained on a path of integrity in both his personal life and in his ministry. And that path of integrity began, he says, with some intentionality. He intentionally turned his back on certain practices and certain patterns of behavior. That word renounce, or whatever form of a term like that you have in your translation, the word renounce is found only here in biblical literature. It means to disown something, to turn your back on something. And what he had renounced, what he had disowned, he says, when he came to Christ, was first of all, certainly his own life of sin. Like any person, yes, Paul once had a hidden, secret life of hypocritical shame before his conversion. We can know, we know that because he was like other Pharisees. The Pharisees that Christ denounced as being clean on the outside but filthy on the inside. Paul could not help but be that way as well. Filthy on the inside because legalism cannot restrain the flesh. 
And a false salvation does not transform anybody. That term shame, by the way, describes things that are disgraceful. Dishonorable deeds, the kind of acts and deeds and thoughts that produce humiliation or embarrassment. This dark, hidden, hypocritical lifestyle had characterized Paul before his conversion. So certainly he renounced that in coming to Christ. He cried out for deliverance. And he began to pursue holiness. That doesn't mean that Paul never sinned again. Of course he did. But when he did sin on this path, he confessed. He kept short accounts. He turned away from it. And therefore, even though he felt the the plague of indwelling sin all the time, the pull of that, as he mentions in Romans 7, he no longer, though, had this sinful secret life that he willfully clung to. He renounced those shameful things. But he also has in mind something else here. He has also in mind other shameful things, the shameful things that the false ministers, the false teachers were known for. He has already mentioned some of their practices earlier in 2 Corinthians. For example, chapter 2, verse 17. Listen how he talks about the ministry, so to speak, of the false teachers in 2 Corinthians 2, 17. We are not like many, meaning the false teachers, peddling the word of God. We don't peddle the word of God. That's how he classified what they did. The teaching of the false ministers was for the purpose of manipulating people and getting money out of them and abusing them, coercing them into submission. These men were deceptive. They were seeking to get ahead in the world by hidden actions. And of course, that's a heart issue, a heart problem. That is evidence of a lack of integrity. And to press further on the fact that the false teachers were not men of integrity, Paul goes on to use these uh, participial clauses, they're called, that expand on these shameful patterns of ministry that the false teachers were known for. Verse 2, he says, we're not walking in craftiness. That term craftiness refers to trickery and deceit. It includes using words and ideas that are cunning. Cunning words, cunning ideas, spinning the truth to their own ends. Jesus used this word about the Pharisees. He was able to discern that in them. Listen to what he says in Luke 20, verse 23, or what it says about him. Luke 20 says, but Jesus detected their trickery. He detected their craftiness. Later on in this letter, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul reminds them of, of what the serpent did in the garden when it came to tempting Eve. 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. That's the way the false teachers were. They walked, Paul says, in this kind of trickery and deception. And you know that in Scripture, walking is a way of referring to an ongoing pattern of life, a lifestyle. Their ministries were characterized by false motives, crafty massaging of the words, power-seeking, manipulation. In essence, they would just do anything to get a following, a crowd. They would do anything to get their own way. One commentator put it this way, these false apostles were, in effect, salesmen. That's all they were. And to them, the gospel 
was just a product. But Paul had renounced all of that. He rejected anything like that. He was no deceiver. He had no hidden agenda. He was nothing more than what he appeared to be, a bold, fearless preacher of the new covenant gospel message. And his approach in his own words, he says, was something plain, something simple and straightforward. He said that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He tells him, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That's not how he carried out his ministry amongst them. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The point is, this is genuine new covenant ministry. We preach the truth, we do it unashamedly, but out of a life of integrity. And we carry on our ministry with integrity. That's what God expects. And we leave the results of all that to God. We put it in His hands. There's another way that He gives us here of describing what the false teachers were doing and what Paul had renounced something that exposed their lack of integrity. Verse 2 goes on to say, or adulterating the word of God. This Greek term that's translated adultering here in this translation, the Greek term is used only here in the New Testament, and it's from a, 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 a word group that's used to speak about uh, corrupting gold, taking pure gold and corrupting it with other ingredients or corrupting wine with inferior ingredients. Here then, in this context, it means to corrupt Scripture or to distort it, to distort or twist Scripture. And that is how the inauthentic ministers carried out their deception. They distorted or twisted the Word in order to manipulate people. They, they use the Word as an instrument just for their own ends. They use it as a means to reinforce and influence people with their own legalistic control of the people. Paul had renounced all of that. No craftiness, no adulterating of the Word of God. Instead, Paul was known for this, verse 2, but by the manifestation of truth. And there's that term but again, that strong Greek adversative, adversative that means on the other hand, in contrast to. Paul was concerned solely to be an effective communicator of what was actually of God, the truth. He only sought to manifest the truth. And that approach of ministering, which is ministering with integrity, was effective. Verse 2 says, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, by staying true to Scripture, Paul's ministry resulted in genuine transformation of people, the kind that can only and ultimately only be accomplished by God. So in people's consciences, which is that inner faculty that's able to distinguish rightness from wrongness, in their consciences, the people knew Paul was a man of integrity, and they knew that he preached the truth. Their own consciences could verify that. In a sense, Paul's just saying, you, 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 want, you want a sermon illustration from me in my preaching? My best sermon illustration is just my own life. Look at that. And your consciences have verified it to be true. That was important. 
that the people's consciences could verify that, but even more important than the people recognizing the validity of his ministry, he knew that he did everything, look what it says, in the sight of God. Paul knew that he ultimately answered directly to God for his ministry. So put this together. Genuine New Covenant ministers are expected to live their lives in complete openness to others, having nothing to hide, no trickery or deception or manipulation, no hidden motives, no mishandling of God's Word. And most important, they're to live their lives aware of their own accountability to God. That is a life and that is a ministry characterized by integrity personal integrity. Number three, here's another distinguishing mark or characteristic of new covenant ministry. Number three, it is practiced in full dependency. It is practiced in full dependency. In new covenant ministry, we must depend on God to accomplish the change of heart that is necessary for anyone to ever respond to the truth of the gospel. And that's because of the reality about lost people. Verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, which is saying it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This is a sobering statement. The verb veiled here means to be concealed or hidden. This is the state of lost people's hearts. The gospel is hidden from them. Or another way to say it, lost people's spiritual eyes are blinded to the gospel. There is a dangerous, subtle, spiritual force working among them, especially working against their understanding of the gospel message. Therefore, they are totally unable on their own to respond to the truth. Unable. What I'm saying is true about your lost coworkers, family members, friends, neighbors. And it is this group of people that in that condition are the ones headed for destruction and judgment, or as our verse puts it, they are perishing. They are the perishing ones. Now, Jesus declared that this group, the perishing ones, are those that are on a particular path that he calls the broad path. Remember what he says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14? Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, which would be another way of saying perishing. And there are many who enter it, in fact, most. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is true even if a correct version of the gospel is being proclaimed, which is what he means when he says our gospel. Our gospel is veiled. He's not saying something prideful there. He just means that he and his co-workers preached the distinctive form of the gospel that was biblically accurate 
as opposed to what the false ministers in Corinth were preaching. So Paul knew that. He knew that even when preaching the real truth, there are people who won't respond due to the state of their hearts. And in verse 4, we find a further explanation of the spiritual force that opposes new covenant gospel ministry. It says in verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That label, the God of this world, is obviously referring to Satan, the devil. It's actually better, though, to translate it, the God of this age. The God of this age. Meaning, the world, the age, refers to this world order, this world system that's opposed to God and opposed to His truth and opposed to His own people. God's people. It's a world system that is in place, was in place then, it's in place now, and it's a world system that will endure until the very end, until Jesus comes in power and glory to judge it and to judge its followers. The God of this world. A little g, God. The devil is not truly a God, but He's described as the God of this age for some good reasons. Think about it. Satan does actually seek to establish himself as God. He did that in the wilderness temptations with Jesus, remember? Satan tried to get even Jesus to worship him. He's called the God of this age because of that and because the sinners who follow the world system, when they follow the world system, they are actually following Satan. They are actually worshiping him, whether they know it or not. And he can be called the God of this age because the devil exercises a level of authority in this world. It's a temporary authority. It's not the ultimate authority. But nevertheless, it is Satan who stands behind atheism he stands behind every world, every false world religion. Again, that's true even if the people are not aware of it. He is the God of this world. So Paul is not saying with this label that he's actually divine. He's just making the point that the fallen world is in subjection to Satan. He's the one controlling the ideologies and the opinions and the aims, the goals, the philosophies, the worldly philosophies, worldly psychology, He's the one controlling the world's education system, the world's definition of, econ uh, of ethics, and the world's way of going about economics. And like I said, no doubt he's behind every false religion. It's true that Satan's opposition to God's work is ultimately doomed to failure. We know that from Scripture. He loses, but for now, he's effective in blinding the minds of those who are unbelievers. Now, the term minds here refers to the ability, the inner man's ability to reason and think. Unregenerate people cannot think properly about spiritual truth. They have blinded minds. Or Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, that's their natural state. And he says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And the lost person's mind is in darkness. 
Or as God, as Paul says it in Romans 1 verse 28, they have depraved minds. God has turned them over to depraved minds. Therefore, no matter how accurate the presentation is, no matter how polished you are, no matter how good your illustrations are, no matter how much personal coercion there is on this person, nothing can persuade a depraved mind to respond favorably to the gospel. Which is what now Paul states in different terms in verse 4. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is another way to say what is found in the New, Te New Covenant gospel message. What's at the heart of the New Covenant gospel message? And we proclaim the glory of Christ and its divine glory because Christ, Paul reminds us, is the image of God. In Christ, we see who God is. This statement, therefore, parallels other statements in the New Testament that confess Jesus as the very image of God or in the form of God, like Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3. He, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. The point is, the glory of Jesus that we proclaim in the gospel message is the glory of God. And this glory is found in the gospel because the gospel is the truth about Jesus, both his person and his work. But only God can turn on the light, as it were. Only God can open the human heart. Only God can cause the veil to be removed so that someone can respond in saving faith. And that means new covenant ministers depend fully on the power of God by His Spirit to do that. And we depend on God to do that by God's sovereign will, according to His perfect sovereign will. True new covenant ministry knows it is God who gives light to a darkened, confused, disobedient heart, and not we who are the ministers. So it's based on divine mercy, it's evidenced in personal integrity, it's practice in full dependency, and here's the fourth and final characteristic. It is centered on Christ's identity. It is centered on Christ's identity, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Now in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day, here's, here's what was popular. Self-promotion, seeking to gain honor and prestige and position, especially through someone's communication abilities. All of that was considered something good to pursue, which means that being motivated by pride and a self-focus was common and acceptable. Even preaching was an opportunity for many to parade just their own superiority. So from the perspective of the false teachers, Paul's weaknesses that I outlined earlier, his constant afflictions, his 
lack of charging for his ministry, his unimpressive public speaking and so forth, according to them, that would all prove that he was unfit for leadership. But that's not how Paul and his co-workers viewed it. As new covenant ministers, they were not focused on promoting self. They were compelled by a different focus, and that was the lordship of Christ. Or as he says in verse 5, they preached Christ Jesus as Lord. Now that confession of the lordship of Christ was at the very center of genuine Christian confession from the beginning of church history, and it's at the center of genuine Christian confession of Jesus' identity today. It has not changed. Because what we find in verses like these is timeless. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and the mouth speaks out of what's in the heart, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There are those still today saying that there is no connection between someone coming to Christ and their understanding of Christ's lordship. A little difficult to get around verses like that in even our text based on what Paul says he preached. And Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. There's only one way someone can ever come to confess genuinely Jesus as their Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. He says this, no one can say, meaning say it and believe it and live by it. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So this must be at the center of New Covenant preaching, communicating the truth about Jesus' identity. And true preaching about Him includes then the truth that He is both the Savior and Lord. Therefore, to embrace His gospel of salvation means you are trusting in, you are believing, you are placing yourself under His benevolent Lordship. It was this fact that Paul was a servant of the Lord that kept him from seeking adulation just for himself and promoting himself. It was the lordship of Christ that kept him from trying to swindle money out of gullible people or mishandling church money. It was the lordship of Christ that prevented him from promoting his own own agenda or trying to act like a dictator over the people. He knew his role. He was just a proclaimer. And in that role, his task was simply to announce the just claims of Jesus, that he is the Lord. Now, of course, Paul preached Christ as the humble, crucified Savior. He preached Christ as the one who died to save his people from their sins, but he also preached him as the sovereign Lord. He preached Christ as the one who demands submission, the one who demands obedience, the one who demands allegiance. Another way to say it, Paul and his co-workers, they recognized something, that they were slaves of Christ. Now that's a term that we find many English translations refusing to use in their translations. The one I'm using is one of those. There's a new Bible out, the Legacy Study Bible. Many of you have heard about that. That's one of the corrections they've made in the translation, that when the Greek says slave, to say slave. In most of the translations, you find it softened 
a bit, and it's translated as a bondservant. Romans 1 verse 1, in most translations, say something like this, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. But the Greek term itself is better translated slave. The reason translators have been hesitant to use the word slave has more to do with just the understanding of and opposition to the great shame in our own country's history when it comes to slavery. It also is due to varying approaches of Bible translation. just doesn't really have anything to do with an accurate assessment of what the term meant in first century. So that was Paul's identity. He was a slave of Christ. He was motivated by that in all he did, included in his preaching. But in addition, Paul was aware that serving Christ as a slave meant serving the people who belonged to Christ. Verse 5, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now, once again, the Greek term itself is better translated slave. Ministers are slaves of the sheep. But in this sense, to be a slave of the people means to serve them with a willingness to spend whatever effort and time and energy is necessary to help them and even to be spent up on their behalf for those who belong to Christ. If you look later in chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15, Paul says it that way. To the Corinthians, he says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. That kind of mindset is what God expects in his new covenant ministers. But I can tell you that kind of mindset and its resultant motivation certainly does not fit with that of corporate America, which operates on a principle of self-promotion and moving up the ladder and for some people doing whatever is necessary for that to happen. Neither does it fit with the focus of the false teachers in Paul's day because they were seeking to to do that very thing and to take advantage of people and control people. Nevertheless, this upside-down orientation, you could call it, is what is to characterize true Christian leadership. Instead of advancing the kingdom by human power or by deceit or by manipulation and coercion, true New Covenant leaders advance God's kingdom by sacrificial service. I really appreciate commentator Guthrie's comment on this, a very simple statement. He says, this cross-like leadership is defined by a downward mobility. This is so crucial to proper New Covenant ministry. And Paul saw himself this way. He saw himself related to his converts not as an overlord, a spiritual dictator, but as a willing servant. But even this humble serving of the sheep is still a result of being centered on Jesus, a focus on Jesus, because look at that phrase at the end. I'm your slave for the sake of Jesus, for his sake. That points to the fact that while Paul was a slave of the Corinthians, they were not his ultimate Lord. Jesus was his Lord. And that is what defines our sense of stewardship as new covenant ministers. We're told elsewhere that we are stewards. 
This helps define that. We are to seek to humbly serve God's people, but it's out of a sense of stewardship to Jesus as the Lord. Conversely, those who are proud, those who are abusive ministers, do what they do out of a primary concern for self and not the welfare of God's sheep. And therefore, they are not fulfilling their new covenant duty to Christ. Well, this section concludes with a further reason why the apostle was content to remain a a slave of the Lord by being a slave of the people and why he had no intention of indulging any self-promotion or becoming an abusive dictator. Verse 6, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. A lot of beautiful poetic language there, but here's the point. Just keep in mind that what we've already noted, that people have their spiritual eyes blinded by the God of this world. But God, in His mercy, opens those spiritual eyes. He opens the hearts of His people so that they can see the light. Now, when Paul talks about the light being the message, he's actually drawn his language from a couple of places in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1 and Isaiah 9. In Genesis 1-3, we find the idea, you know, God creating the world there and God speaking into the darkness and it says creating light. Let there be light. And there was. You have that language influencing Paul's words here. You also have the idea from Isaiah 9, where it's prophesied in Isaiah 9 that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. All of that is being brought to bear on Paul's writing here. But in our text, he goes on to say that this light, look what he says, is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And faith just means the person. Meaning that at the point of conversion, we perceive Christ for who He is. The Savior, the Lord, who is the very expression of the glory of the living God. So that's obviously a radical heart change that takes place. The Spirit of God uses the proclamation of the truth to work true transformation in the heart. Spiritual blindness is turned to spiritual sight. From darkness there becomes light. And that is the answer, the true answer to the human condition. It's not manipulation of people. It's not some sort of external change. What people need is gospel transformation, change of heart. Listen to all these verses. Romans 2.29, true circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. He uses the analogy of physical circumcision to say that there's another kind of circumcision that's more important. This is what God wants, the circumcision of the heart. God performs that. He removes the veil off the heart. Romans 5.5, at conversion, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Romans 6.17, at salvation, it says a person becomes obedient from the heart. Galatians 4.6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Ephesians 3.17, 
Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. Now obviously this kind of saving knowledge that all those verses talk about and what our text talks about is more than just some mere cognitive assent to God's existence or some mere intellectual assent to, to Jesus. This knowledge includes something that is relational. The new covenant believer who has had the veil removed from their heart, their spiritual darkened eyes opened, has a personal relationship with God the Father through knowing and loving Jesus the Lord, who is God the Son. And what's exciting about that is that from that moment on, there is ongoing growth still involved. Look back at the last verse of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is such a beautiful verse. I've seen Pastor MacArthur sign this verse in books and Bibles countless times as one of his favorite verses. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That's a statement about our ongoing progressive sanctification, confirming that we are constantly then being changed into the image of Christ ourselves. In fact, God predestined His people to be conformed to the image of the Son. Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So because of all of this, Paul had no desire to be a dictator, to be abusive. He had no desire to seek to make people into something of his own design. No desire to manipulate, no desire to deceive people, no desire to coerce people, all according to his own agenda for his own self-glory. He was excited about faithfully proclaiming the truth about Jesus' lordship, doing it in love, and then leaving the results up to God. So let me just summarize then. Genuine New Covenant ministry. It rests, first of all, on the mercy of God. God showed us mercy, and knowing that helps us persevere in serving the Lord, even when ministry is difficult, even when we're criticized, even when we're attacked. Second, this ministry is the overflow of a life lived with integrity. Skill alone is not enough. Without integrity, skill just inevitably will lead to some shameful practices, like deception, like twisting God's word. The bottom line is that the minister must preach and live before God in a way that the truth proclaimed commends the minister to every person's conscience. Third, authentic proclamation of the gospel will be rejected by many because of their blinded minds. No matter how much we preach the truth and certainly no matter how much we might manipulate or coerce, and that's because there's opposition from spiritual forces that are beyond us. So we must humbly and fully depend on the power of the Spirit of God to open people's hearts to the truth. And fourth, this genuine message is focused on the Lordship of Christ. People who embrace that message, they embrace that, embrace that too of who He is. They come humbly to Christ, casting themselves on Him, no longer trusting in self, but trusting in Him, acknowledging that He's God and they're not. They love serving Him. It's evidence of their regeneration, as is the love of serving 
the Lord's people. You could certainly say it in some negative ways. True New Covenant ministry is not a, it's not a marketing exercise. We're, we're not salesmen. It, it, we can't persuade anybody to buy the product. The consumer resistance is something satanic. A preacher can't save anybody. A preacher can't change anybody. It's all a sovereign act of God, as so many verses of Scripture support. So again, we don't think in terms of just trying to package the message a certain way or finding some technique to use and proclaiming it. None of that works against the condition of the hearts of the hearers. But God can open the sin-blinded hearts of people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. So we just keep faithfully proclaiming who Jesus is. He's the Lord. We keep serving those who belong to Jesus. All of that becomes the very focus of our message. And we must renounce all the shameful things, personally and in ministry. And by the way, let me just speak personally for a moment. This is, I'm convinced, the missing element in the attempt of many people's lives when they can't seem to stop besetting sins. I'm not convinced there's ever been a point of genuinely renouncing it before the Lord. Instead, they toy with it and they nourish it. But a repentance that does not involve a a true renouncing and turning from sin is not something the Scripture talks about. So we renounce what's wrong. We abandon proclaiming the truth of any other message And we do all this, not losing heart along the way and doing what is right. And we won't when we remember the mercy that God has shown to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this little snapshot reminder of new covenant ministry, of what you've done for us, and who you are and who Jesus is. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for not only saving us, but even using us in ministry. All of us, in some way. We can all be strengthened not to lose heart when we think about your great mercy that we have received. But Lord, help us to stay true to the truth and help us understand that we are stewards, we are instruments in your hands, and that the results are up to you according to your sovereign will. Help us to be faithful, not to lose heart, not to be remiss in our duties, but to keep on keeping on, serving joyfully the risen Christ. I do pray for anyone here who's never come to that place of opening their hearts humbly to trust in Him alone, to receive Him as the Savior and Lord of their lives. I pray that you remove the veil today. Father, those of us who know you, may we rejoice in the knowledge of all this daily. In our Savior's name, amen.